Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, welcome to October. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We spend a lot of time talking about how there are threats to American democracy on the far right. But sometimes we forget that American ideology is a game of push and pull. In today's episode, you're going to hear a little bit different perspective on the battle that's going on for American hearts and minds. I hope you'll listen to it with an open mind, and I hope you'll give us your feedback. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Yasha Munk, a writer and academic known for his work on the crisis of democracy and the defense of philosophically liberal values. He's an international affairs professor at Johns Hopkins University, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the founder of the online magazine, Persuasion, also a great podcast. Yasha has written a number of books, his latest being The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time, which is available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from Baltimore, Maryland. Yasha, welcome. Thank you so much. So I read the book and first question I had is I'm looking at some of the folks who commented on it, and some are like Henry Louis Gates from Harvard, you know, considered, I think, probably a pretty public intellectual on the left, gave your book high marks for being someone who's willing to take on, from a philosophical and political perspective, the idea that, yes, we spend a lot of time talking about Trumpism and the right and all of the things that, you know, you grew up in Germany and the things that your family experienced from a sort of vast right-wing perspective. It's not, I don't even call it conservative. But your book takes on what happens on the far left, I guess, if we'd even want to call it that. I'm not even sure if progressive is the right word. So tell us why you thought it was important to write this book now, to say these things in the context of the battle we're in. Well, listen, I mean, I'm somebody who's been very worried about the rise of populism and the crisis of democracy for about 10 years. I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I started worrying about this stuff before it was cool. And I continue to be very worried about those. I'm terrified about the fact that Donald Trump seems to be running neck to neck with Joe Biden in a lot of polls for 2024 and actually think that a second period in government for Trump would probably be worse than the first. At the same time, I've also always been concerned about some of the trends I've seen among friends and colleagues on the left. I am of the left. I come from the left. For me, free speech has always been a left-wing value. It has always been one of the things that allows the powerless to raise their voices even when that's very unpopular. And I found it strange that we've given up on that value and delegated it to insincere people on the right. Uh, more broadly, I have observed the rise of a genuinely new ideology, of a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation, first in the academy and then in a lot of mainstream institutions. And I worry about those ideas because I think 
they are counterproductive. I think they're going to make it harder for us to build thriving, vibrant, diverse democracy that we should aim for. And I worry about them because I think that they are a political own goal, that they actually will make it easier rather than harder for Trump to win re-election in 2024. And so both because I think that these ideas are concerning in themselves and because I think that they actually will help the most dangerous kind of forces wrest control back of power in the United States, it's a bad idea to turn a blind eye to these problems. We should confront them in order to be able to build a better country. And so what you're talking about is a phenomenon that started, again, on, I would say, the very progressive side. And you talk about, you know, the rise of seeing the world in the context of, again, race, creed, religion, sexual orientation or identification, in that you are only able to have a conversation about those subjects if you belong to that in-group or if you identify in that in-group. And if you do not, then your opinion is either invalid to begin with, could be appropriating, or by attempting to have that conversation. And, and tell me where I get it wrong here, Yasha. You are perpetrating this sort of oppression that has started from, could be decades ago, centuries ago, eons ago. Yeah, so perhaps let's give a few examples of where I think the practices and the norms inspired by these ideas go wrong. Then we can go back to really sort of get to the heart of them, get to what they're actually trying to do. You know, in a diverse society, a lot of people are going to put a lot of weight on their identity, and that's fine. Part of freedom of association is that you get to decide who to have dinner with, who to hang out with, or what kind of cultural club to fund in high school. But in many private schools in the United States now, teachers come into the third grade, the second grade, the first grade, and tell kids, if you're black, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. And if you're white, you go in that corner over there. I think that that is a mistake. To think that the prime goal of a good education is to get students to see themselves as quote-unquote racial beings, as some of the most influential pedagogues now do, is, I think, a mistake. When it comes to questions like how we relate to each other in our cultural life, I'm somebody who believes that the beauty of America is how many people we have from all over the world and the way in which we're creating all kinds of cultural products and artifacts together, the way in which we're bumping up against each other and collaborating and aspiring each other and creating new forms of culture. Instead, we increasingly have this sort of broad prohibition on what's called cultural appropriation in which we're supposed to be very worried about the cultural purity of different groups, about the ways in which we might inspire each other. I think that that too is a mistake. So going back all the way to the big questions, you know, for me, one of the most inspiring and proud political traditions in American history is that which goes from Frederick Douglass to Abraham Lincoln, uh, the Lincoln Project, to uh, Martin Luther King and Barack Obama. And what they said is, we recognize that our society is hypocritical, that it pays lip service to these grand ideals about equality, but does not actually live up to it. This is what Frederick Douglass reprimanded his compatriots with when he was invited to hold a speech for the 4th of July. But they also said, rather than ripping up those principles, ripping up those documents, what we should do is to live up to them. He didn't say, you're being hypocritical, so 
forget about the Declaration of Independence. He was saying, if you're serious about those values, then you have to join me in the fight to abolish slavery, to call for immediate emancipation, to make sure that African Americans are included under those kinds of values. As I show in the first part of my book, which really traces in a serious way the intellectual history of these ideas, the core theorists of what I'm calling the identity synthesis of this new tradition reject that idea. Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory, explicitly says that we have to reject what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Kimberly Crenshaw, another key figure in that tradition, says that the philosophy of Barack Obama is fundamentally at odds with critical race theory. So what they're saying is, because our principles are hypocritical, we should give up on them and we should make how people are treated and how we all treat each other explicitly depend on the kind of racial groups of which we are a part. That, I think, is the wrong solution to the injustice and the racism and the discrimination that undoubtedly persists in the United States today. But how does that work? I mean, if you go back to 1968, George Wallace, then governor of Alabama, ran on a specifically segregationist platform. Separate but equal was the law of the land prior to Brown versus Board of Education. So what I was surprised and frankly confused about, Yasha, was how do we get to a place where now those things are being espoused by some of the very same people who, at least in an ideal world, which we do not and will not ever live, was supposed to protect and bring in to the broader educational society, the broader work society, the broader culture of the United States, that yes, we have the original sin of slavery built into the foundation. It took 600,000 Americans dying, multiple amendments to the Constitution. We are not there yet, right? It is a fight that goes on. So how do we get to a place where, you know, in 1963, you know, judge me not by the color of my skin, but the content of my character to a place where it says, no, judge me by the color of my skin and I will judge you. So that's the question that I asked myself. And as somebody who's trained as an intellectual historian, I set out to do the reading and to really figure out how smart, thoughtful people could end up with those positions with which I fundamentally disagree. I'm not going to give you the whole history here, but just to give two points that are relevant to this. You know, one is the thought of Gayatri Spivak, a post-colonial literary theorist who was born and raised in Kolkata in India. And she was really concerned that some of the postmodern authors she most admired had rejected the idea of identity groups, that these essentialist accounts of identity which claim there's something that people really have in common by virtue of being born to this particular kind of group were wrong. She said, philosophically speaking, these people are correct. But I need to be able to speak for the subaltern, for the most oppressed people in the world. They can't speak for themselves. And for to be able to speak on their behalf, I need to operate with these kind of identity categories. And so she called for something which she herself admitted was a little bit paradoxical, which is a form of strategic essentialism. She said, philosophically speaking, these essentialist accounts of race and so on are wrong, but for strategic purposes, let's pretend that they are right in order to allow people to fight against these injustices. And you still see the echo of that today when activists say things like, of course, race is a social construct, something that doesn't have biological reality. I agree with that so far. But then we go on to basically talk 
as foe race to find everything, and as foe the most important thing about you is your race, as for I will not be able to understand you, and you will not be able to understand me if we have different races. Spivak herself came to be very critical of this. She said her own term had become the union ticket for essentialism, the thing that you pay lip service to before basically acting in these ways that put race front and center in an uncritical way. And that really is where these pedagogical trends I was talking about of separating kids out by different ethnic groups come from. The other key step here is the philosophy of Derek Bell, who is in many ways an admirable and a brave man. He was a lawyer for the NAACP in the 1960s, helping to desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions through the American South and beyond. But he explicitly comes to agree with the critique of segregationist right-wing senators who say, you know, these civil rights lawyers running around, they claim that they are arguing for the interests of their clients, but really they're just imposing the ideology of integration on us. And Derek Bell, observing real flaws of the way integration worked, the fact that some of his clients wanted a better education, but by the time that he won those court cases for them, they had already graduated high school, he said, well, perhaps actually these obstacles are so bad, but America is not improving at all. That the idea of racial progress through Brown versus Board was an illusion, and that we should go to schools that are separate but truly equal. And that really became the founding stone of this idea that any attempt to live up to more universal values is always going to fail. We need to explicitly make how people are treated depend on the kind of group of which they are a part. So again, I think both Spivak and Bell are sophisticated thinkers. I enjoyed reading the work. They have reasons in their own time to be responding to events in a particular way. But I think the ideas that we've inherited from that are really quite damaging. And they're explicitly in contrast with my heroes, with people like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and Barack Obama, for that matter. Let me ask this because, you know, it is, for me, the initial reaction is, okay, well, I'm a white guy, 47 years old, live in the suburbs, right, in a state like Utah, right, which... There's very little diversity here, although more every day, a burgeoning Latino population. But if everyone is seen on the basis of what we look like and what we choose to identify with or who we love, doesn't that just create not only a tension between, let's say, white Americans and black Americans, but Latino Americans and Asian Americans and Native Americans? So that now what you have is not a coalition of people working towards a broader, small L liberal goal, which I want to talk to you about. But as you say here, for in the long run, this will succeed only in encouraging a zero sum competition between different ethnic blocks. How can anybody collectively be successful if everybody's sort of elbowing everyone out of the way saying, it's my turn, I get this, you don't get that? But when everybody is now coalesced into these small groups, and if and when that happens, doesn't that make it easier for the people like Donald Trump and the people that espouse those values to sort of pick off their opponents and say, well, we just got to split these people off here, split these people off there? Well, and this is exactly where my concern about this ideology and my concern about how to keep people like Donald Trump out of a White House come together. I think one of the great mistakes that democratic strategists have made for the last 15 or 20 years 
is to assume that the growth of a non-white population, the movement towards a majority-minority America, is going to deliver them these automatic victories. You know, we saw in Florida, which is now very close to being a majority-minority state, that the state has actually moved towards Republicans. You know, the idea that there's this natural dividing line between whites on the one side and people of color on the other side is unfortunately naive. And we're seeing larger and larger numbers of non-white voters, particularly of Latinos, but also some Asian Americans and also some African Americans actually embrace Donald Trump. And so you need to think about politics in a slightly more sophisticated way if you actually want to build electoral majorities. Now, going back to what happens in terms of social psychology, you know, I have become convinced by a deep literature in that field that the way in which we draw boundaries is relatively fluid. What exactly you think of as the thing that determines who is part of the in-group and who is part of the out-group differs depending on circumstance. But once you say, hey, you are part of my in-group and that guy over there is part of my out-group, that is going to have really big consequences on how I act. I'm going to treat you generously, sometimes with great courage. I'm often going to treat the person in the out-group really, really bad. So what happens in those first grade classrooms, so the teacher comes in and splits people up in those ways. What happens in particular to the white kids who are brought together and told that they too should become racial beings, that they should own the European heritage? Well, perhaps a few of them become, you know, anti-racists, become people who are determined to disclaim their white privilege. Perhaps that works. But I think many more of them are likely to become white supremacists. Many more of them are likely to say, well, in that case, the most important thing about me is that I'm white. I'm going to fight for the interests of whites. And to imagine that that's going to help us build a better society or that's going to help us keep people like Trump out of the White House is just, is just deeply and dangerously naive. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So I grew up in Northern Virginia, Fairfax County, Virginia. My mom and dad worked in Washington, D.C. And I went to Fairfax County Public Schools and the elementary school I went to, the junior high I went to, the high school I went to my freshman year, there were people of every race, creed, religion. It never occurred to me that this was unusual. Does that make sense? One of my best friends, you know, my freshman year of high school before I moved was the son of Arab immigrants, right? He practiced Islam. His family practiced Islam. We played baseball together. We ate lunch together. It never occurred to me that this was unusual. Then I moved to Dallas, Texas, and I went to an all-white school, basically. And to your point, it was shocking for a kid like me, 15, to go from a place where there were all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds and, and no one really thought about it to a place where it was very distinct. Like, yeah, this is how the world is. And then you go and you go to some folks' homes and you hear the way their parents talk and you're like, holy, you know what? 
And so for me, I guess I'm glad I had that opportunity as, you know, someone who was in elementary, junior high, or early high school to have that experience because you can see it in real time. It absolutely does happen. Now, if it had been, you know, all the white kids are going to go over here, all the black kids are going to go over here, all the Latino kids or Asian kids, it would have been unusual. And how do you keep kids apart anyway, right? When they're walking through the hallways and let's just use an American high school, and I'm sorry to go so long-winded here, as the template for everything in America, you know, are you going to have one large high school where there's, you know, sections A through E or A through J? And then how do you start breaking those things up? I don't want to undersell what you're talking about here, but I want to bring it down to its brass tacks. It doesn't seem very practical either. No, it doesn't. And, you know, in the end, I share your optimism that actually we are seeing more and more forms of cooperation and friendship and even romantic relationships between members of different groups. I mean, you, know, you go back to the 1960s and 4% of Americans thought that interracial marriage was morally acceptable. 4%. Today, 96% of Americans believe that it is morally acceptable. Thank God. And we see that this is not just stuff that people tell pollsters because they've learned that it's socially unacceptable to say something else. There's real changes in behavior. The number of newborns who have parents from two different ethnic groups has increased by six or sevenfold over the course of a few decades. And that's a really positive development. But I think sort of how we structure our institutions is nevertheless important as well. You know, I'll give you the example of colleges, which used to give people roommates either randomly assigned or explicitly chosen to be as unlike them as possible. And many meaningful friendships have come out of that. I'm sure many people listening to this podcast have a close friend who they met freshman year of college who's very different from them. Nowadays, colleges nearly all allow incoming students to request a particular roommate. So often there'll be a high school friend of theirs. And even if they don't know anybody going to the same college, they will go on social media pages and find people who are as like them as possible to request. And many elite schools are even building separate dorms for black students, for Latino students, and encouraging many minority students to go and live in those separate communities. So, you know, will that stop people from making friends? Will that stop people from still seeking each other out? No, not entirely, but I think it really does matter how our institutions are run. We know from social psychology that the best way to overcome prejudice is to have contact with members of those other groups, in particular in situations where you are treated equally in that circumstance, where you share a common goal, and where the authority figures are telling you to get along. I'm not much of a jock, but that sounds like a sports team. Those are the circumstances where you got to get along to win the match. Your coach shouts at you not to have bring any beef from outside in there. And then once you trust each other, once you win that match, once you celebrate, you can open up about the real challenges you're experiencing in society, tell each other about the lives you lead. That is the way to build a better society. This is one thing, too, is the idea of maybe not shared background, shared upbringing, but shared values, right? sense of right and wrong, sense of fair and unfair, a sense of what's good and bad. You know, and, and so this also seems to say, no, there's going to be separate values for everybody. Well, how do you determine that? And, you know, 
I don't want to make it overtly political just yet, Yasha, but when you see like Donald Trump standing up on the stage in Waco, Texas in April, and he says, I am your retribution, right? He is claiming the mantle and tens of millions of Americans are happily giving it to him, right? But how does someone else attain, without just getting up on a stage and saying it, the credibility to say, I speak for you? We might not know each other. We might not come from the same places, you know, geographically, economically, educationally, whatever. But I now speak for you. I mean, how do you overcome that? Because it could be that, like, I don't want Donald Trump speaking for me. And I have to assume that regardless of race, creed, sexual orientation, there are a lot of people who are like, well, that's great. I'm glad you believe it. But like, you don't speak for me. Well, I, I think this is really important. Ayanna Presley, member of the House of Representatives, said at one point, you know, I don't want any more black politicians who are not a black voice. I don't know, want any more brown politicians who are not a brown voice. I don't want any more queer politicians who are not a queer voice. Well, what does that mean? You know, what, what is a black politician that's not a black voice, right? Anna Presley is saying she is a true representative of black Americans. But what about Jim Clyburn, who's a lot more politically moderate? Is he not a black voice? And this gets to the heart of a question that's really important to me. You know, one of the core claims in this tradition that I'm chronicling is the idea that if you and I stand at different intersections of identity, then we really can't understand each other. That there's just these deep roadblocks to our ability to communicate. And I think that that is really coercive. Now, what's obviously true is that as a guy, I don't naturally have the experience of being afraid of being sexually harassed in the subway. I don't know what it feels like to see a cop and worry that he might stop and frisk me or that he might, you know, treat me violently. And so absolutely, to understand the injustices in my society, I have to speak to others with an open mind. When women talk about sexual harassment, I should listen to them carefully. When black Americans talk about police violence, I should recognize that they will have experiences of that I don't share. But once I listen to their words, I can understand what they are telling me. And more importantly, I can understand that this actually is something that I want to change, that I don't want to live in a society in which my female friends are afraid to go out at night, in which my friends who are of different ethnic groups can't trust the police. It's for my own reasons, because of my own values that I want to fight against that. Not, as many people are now suggesting, uh, the idea that I can't understand what they're saying, I can't sit in judgment of that, so I just have to delegate to their group. And that claim that you just delegate you know, really goes back to this thing that Anna Presley is saying, which is who are you delegating to? Well, first of all, most people are not going to delegate the judgment in this kind of way, even if they claim to. But even when they do, what they're going to do is to pick and choose the person who's a member of that group with whom they already agree. And that person is going to say, I speak on behalf of all black people. Well, as Bayard Rustin pointed out, the idea of a unified black community is the invention of whites as well as of certain people within the black community who want to have that privileged position, who want to be able to speak for others in that kind of way. And it leads us to big political misjudgments. You know, a lot of my progressive friends are 100% convinced that a lot of African Americans want to abolish the police. And part of the reason for that is that they're in super progressive circles and some of the black people in those circles, like many of the white people in those circles, do want to abolish the police. When you actually look at opinion polls, at focus groups, at all the evidence we have of opinion in the black community, most black Americans are deeply concerned about police violence, 
but they want a police force that works. They want more and better police. And I think the other part, too, is this idea of, and look, you're a philosopher, Yasha, so, you know, objectivity versus subjectivity. If you are a young black man and you get pulled over and the very nature of you being pulled over says your father or mother has given you the talk, right, which we've heard about, right, that is to me heartbreaking and fundamentally un-American that any parent has to talk to their children about this stuff. That is objectively bad. To me, there's no subjectivity there. If a young man gets pulled over by the police and has to worry about, am I going to go to jail at best, maybe, and am I going to get killed at worst, that is objectively not okay. That is objectively unethical, un-American, everything else. And I can believe that even if I don't experience that necessary thing. And there's a question here about the nature of political solidarity, right? What is the right kind of solidarity? Is it to say, look, you're saying you've had these experiences. I really can't understand what you're saying because we're from different races. So sure, I'll get on board with whatever this you say, but I really don't know about that. No, I want to say, listen, I haven't had that experience. I don't know exactly what it feels like, but I can communicate with you well enough that I believe your experience and it shocks my own moral conscience and I'm going to stand in solidarity with you because I don't want to live in that kind of society. Which of these is the most forward-looking, the most optimistic and the most effective model of political solidarity? I think it's the one that's built on mutual communication, not on the assumption that we can't communicate. So I want to just tell one more personal story, and then I want to get to one thing you just said. So right after the 2016 campaign, uh, there's a woman named Karen Hunter, and she has a radio show on Sirius XM, uh, The Urban View. Great show. And this was a week after Trump's being elected, right? So everybody's just in shock. And she puts together a show called Black in America, and it's five white panelists, me and literally and figuratively in the middle, two fairly left of center people, and then two right of center people. And it's this, you know, back and forth where the people on the left are trying never to say anything wrong. They're trying to find the best answer for any given question. And the man and woman on the right are like they were out of central casting, Yasha, right? They sort of said everything that even if they didn't think it was transgressive, sort of just had that appeal. But at one point, a young woman asks, what does it feel like to be white? And the guys on the left, I mean, Yasha, if they could have turned themselves into pretzels trying to answer that question in a way they thought wouldn't be offensive, they would have. Got to me. I said, it means I don't think about it. I get up in the morning, I don't think about it. I go on about my day. And I got the sense that like the audience appreciated the honesty, right? I wasn't trying to bullshit them on the answer. I don't know what it feels like to be black. And I'm never going to. But I can appreciate, as we were just talking about, the idea that you must, and it has a fundamental effect on your life. That doesn't mean, again, that we can't or shouldn't talk. In fact, I think not talking is going to make that worse because it's going to push you and me further away from, as you said, that mutual understanding. But I want to ask about this. It seems to me that amongst the the folks that you're discussing in this book who are coming up with this identity synthesis, that there is a just a core pessimism at its root. And amongst the Trumpy right, there's a core cynicism. And neither one of those equal a better outcome for the vast majority of not only Americans, but also humanity. Yeah, so one of the core claims that people like Derek Bell make is that America in, in 2000, or probably today, he passed away a few years ago, is as racist as it was in, in 1950 or in 1850. 
but we have made no progress at all. And now, again, I want to take very seriously the injustices that we have, the ongoing forms of discrimination and racism that obviously exist. But I find that sentence to be offensive. Not offensive to us great Americans living today, but to the Americans who suffered much worse forms of maltreatment, much more explicit forms of discrimination in 1950, that along in 1850. The other reason why that matters is that it leads us to the wrong conclusions about how to build a better society. If you think that we haven't made any progress at all, then the solution is to rip up the United States Constitution, is to rip up our political system, is to start from scratch. And then I think we're going to end up in an all-out brawl for power, which is likely to end the tolerance that we have actually sustained in the society, which is likely to get a lot worse. Now, if, on the other hand, you recognize that, of course, our society is imperfect, but, of course, there are many injustices we have to fight against, but that we have been able to make progress, that America is obviously less homophobic today than it was in the 1990s when Ellen DeGeneres lost her talk show because she admitted publicly to being a lesbian, that, of course, the United States is less racist today than it was in the age of Jim Crow, let alone in the age where chattel slavery was the law of the land. Then you say, actually, the appeals by people to say, you're being hypocritical. You say you care about these values. If you do, then how can you exclude us from being able to marry? How can you exclude us from being able to have the same rights and the same chances, the same opportunities in our society? I think that it's actually that forward-looking creed that has allowed this country to become an imperfect but an ever more perfect union. And despite you know, the real concerns I have about the current shape of our politics and this dangerous moment we're in, we have to retain that ability to recognize the progress we've made and to hope for greater progress within our political institutions, within our constitutional tradition, within the institutions that have allowed us to make this progress in the past. I take it personally, Yash, as a given that what passes for the Republican Party today, MAGA, even as Senator Mitt Romney said recently, as we're recording this last week, that, you know, a large part of his party doesn't believe in the Constitution. But one thing you note about the identity synthesis folks is that they don't really believe in democracy either. So what's the end point politically? Is it anarchy? If it's not democracy, if it's not self-determination, then what the heck is it? Well, I think that's a question to which they don't have as much of an answer as they should. But what is clear within the tradition is that, you know, as one of the less subtle defenders of it, Ibram X. Kendi says, you know, any set of institutions that has racially disparate outcomes is racist. And there's no such thing as being not racist. You're either racist or you're anti-racist. So if you want to be an anti-racist, you effectively have to be committed to abolishing the U.S. Constitution. And if you disagree with that, then voila, boom, you're a racist. That, I think, is far too simplistic a view of reality. I don't think that we're going to make the world a better place by always treating people in accordance with a group into which they were born, because many people don't easily belong in one group or another. Many people don't want to define themselves to that extent by the group into which we're born, but more importantly, because this is a recipe, as you were saying earlier, for all-out, zero-sum, group, conflict, power, politics. 
that by definition, the majority group remains in the majority. By definition, the historically dominant groups retain a lot of power in our society. To think that scrapping the constitution and making how you treat it explicitly dependent on the group of which you are a part is miraculously going to help the most marginalized, the most disadvantaged, the weakest in society is unfortunately a very, very naive belief. And historically, it has been bad for people. Well, certainly every time that diverse societies have fallen apart, that has led to really violent forms of conflict. I, I think the, the point of the speech is important here, right? A lot of my friends and colleagues have mostly reflected about free speech in context of institutions where they assumed that their ideas were in charge. And if you're fighting about whether we should have free speech at Harvard University or at Stanford University, uh, that is, I suppose, a reasonable assumption to make. But if we actually restrict free speech at the federal level, if we actually had a federal census bureau, or if we actually give these companies in Silicon Valley enormous power to decide what we can say and what we can read. Who do you think is going to be a member of that, I don't know what they'd call it, speech facilitation committee in Palo Alto? Who do you think is going to be in the federal census bureau? It's not going to be the marginalized. It's not going to be the powerless. It, by definition, it's going to be people who are very influential, very powerful, very highly educated, probably very affluent. And so it's just naive to think that this, in a systematic way, is going to help the marginalized. You spend, you know, I think about the last quarter of the book talking about small L liberalism. And I think as we're talking about, you know, let's call it Trump on one side and, and the, the identity synthesizers on the other, right? It's sort of like they have this Molotov cocktail, right, that they throw back and forth to each other. Yasha. And as they throw it, they move further and further apart. And a few people get dragged with them. But at some point, like the Molotov cocktail is going to land in the middle. And it's just all going to catch on fire. Right. But I, I, I don't really like the expression centrism. I don't think it's real. I think it diminishes the belief systems of people who aren't on the extreme of one pole or the other. Right. I'm not far right. I don't believe I'm far left, but I have deeply held beliefs and principles, at least as far as I'm concerned. So how does the small L liberal majority make sure that the furthest polls do not drag us into the zero-sum ugliness that you're so worried about? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I'm struck by is that the basic commitments of this ideology place it in direct conflict with a great variety of different moral, political, and religious traditions in the United States. I'm a philosophical liberal, a center-left philosophical liberal, and you know it conflicts with my ideas of political equality and individual freedom and collective self-determination. But I have friends who are Marxists, and they think that this overemphasis on identity over categories like social class and economic equality is misguided. I have friends who are devout Christians, and they say that their teaching says that the most important thing about you is that you have a human soul and that you're made in the image of God. And that is more important than which particular ethnic group you are born into. I could add and add and add to this. And so there's a huge majority of Americans that I think reject these extreme views. And some of them are in the center. 
but some on the left, some on the right. You know, we think that Americans either refuse to accept that people like George Washington have great historical accomplishments, you know, or they don't want kids to learn about slavery in schools. Actually, great majorities of Americans are capable of holding these two truths in their heads at the same time. As I said earlier, Asha, isn't it entirely possible and necessary from my perspective to understand, as I said, the state in which the United States was created, the modern United States, the constitutional United States 240 some years ago, and understand all of the fundamentally, historically, morally wrong things that were going on when that happened, but also say, we can accept that. We must do what we can to account for that while also saying, but this has given us a foundation to say, we're never going to go back to that. And the future is out there and it's up to us to decide how we want to do it. But we're all in this together. I think that's exactly right. So look, in my book, In the Identity Trap, I, I do a number of things. In part one, I actually trace the origin of these ideas. Where in the academy do these ideas actually come from? I'm talking about postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. In part two, I say, all right, great. So these ideas start to have a lot of influence in universities, but how is it that they come to have so much power in the mainstream? How is it that they come to have influence over think tank and congressional campaigns and corporations and religious communities? In part three, I think about the main applications of the popularized version of this ideology to areas from whether we can understand each other across identity lines, to areas like cultural appropriation and free speech and these new pedagogical trends we've been talking about and questions about uh, you know, race-sensitive public policy. But in the, in the last part, I really boil these ideas down to the core tenets, to the core beliefs. And I think that the identity synthesis can be reduced to three main claims. The first is that to understand the world, you really have to see it exclusively or principally through the prism of identity groups like race, gender, and sexual orientation. But to understand this conversation, really what you need to understand is our respective racial and other groups, and that's going to give you the key to understanding the world. But as Robin D'Angelo, one of the popularizers of his ideology, has said, if a white person drops a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of racial supremacy, of white supremacy, to bear on them, irrespective of the context, irrespective of whether we're talking about a white boss who's uh, exploiting his black workers, or we're talking about friends who are arguing about politics who've known each other for 40 years. Right? The second claim that they make is that all of these ideals that we've been talking about, the ideals that Frederick Douglass believed, the ideals in the Declaration of Independence, uh, the idea of free speech, they are just trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. They were just put in place to continue racial discrimination and sexual discrimination. The actual goal is to keep these things going. And therefore, they then have this suggestion to rip these things up and to make how we treat each other and how all of us are treated by the state explicitly dependent on the group you're born into. I think there is a response to these ideas that takes injustice and discrimination 100% seriously without throwing the baby out with a bathwater. And that is, first of all, to recognize that, of course, race and gender and sexual orientation are important. Of course, they help to explain how our society is structured today. But other things matter too. Social class matters. Religion matters. Whether you're a good or a bad guy matters. What you do in the world and how you think about the world 
matters. Secondly, that as we've been talking about, the society has always been deeply flawed, but we've been able to make real progress and we've been able to make progress in part because of the attempts of courageous people to make us live up to those ideals, their ability to point to those ideals and say, by what logic are you excluding us from them? And so therefore, we should build a society in which how you're treated comes to be less rather than more dependent on the group into which you're born. Not because we turn a blind eye to those injustices, but because we've managed to remedy a lot of them. That, I think, is the way to respond to these things in a serious, well-considered way. Well, and, and let me ask you this, just to bring it to electoral politics. I was looking on social media the other day, and Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, uh, had just said Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. And a lot of very progressive users were just attacking him up one side and down the other, Yasha. You know, he's abandoned everything, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess my question is this is, what's the alternative? Like, you dislike Joe Biden because he's never going to be pure enough. Okay, you're right. He's a pretty moderate Democrat. Bernie was something. He was a moment in time in 2016, almost had another moment in 2020. But he has realized that the future of the country is on the line. And Donald Trump getting reelected, right? I've got deeply held beliefs, but I got to look at what's really in front of me right near Yasha, which is this guy winning again means all this stuff we're working for, forget about it. It goes out the window. So how do you bring some rationality to a discussion like that? Because like, look, there's plenty to be unhappy about. You could always find something to be unhappy about. There's no question about that. But how do you get whether or not it's the people working on the identity synthesis front to say, wait a second, if I want any of these things that I believe in to have real purchase in American society, American life, that guy sitting in the White House is going to make sure it never happens. Well, I think a lot of that is driven by a cynicism which says that everybody who's not pure is the same. That because you might agree with some of Bernie's positions over Joe Biden's positions, you know, any deviation from that basically is giving everything away. And so who cares over Joe Biden or Donald Trump and the White House? And I think that that's wrong on social and economic policy. I think there's a reason why wages are now going up for the least affluent Americans for the first time in a long while. But it's also true in terms of the health of our democratic institutions. If you think that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are equal threats to our democratic institutions, you simply haven't been paying attention for the last years. Or you have been paying attention, but your own moral purity is more important to you than the actual suffering that a lot of vulnerable people in our society are going to experience if somebody like Trump is reelected. So I want to move off the book in American politics. I want to zoom out. I want to zoom into Poland. And it might seem unusual, but they have an, uh, an election coming up in mid-October, October 15th. And right now, the, is it the Law and Justice Party has been in charge of Poland, their right wing increasingly showing authoritarian or expressing authoritarian tendencies, you know, sort of a la Viktor Orban in Hungary. And we had Aleksandra Wisniewska from Poland on the show earlier this summer, who's running for, I think, parliament in Lodz. So, you wrote a piece about the in the Atlantic about why this is so important. So give our listeners a little bit of a taste of what's going on on NATO's eastern flank here. 
So which, as it happens, is where my mother was born and my parents grew up in Poland, so I have personal stakes there too. You know, to zoom out a, a, a long way, Poland, along with Hungary and other countries in Central Europe, were some of the great success stories of democratic transition after the communist regimes. If you're a political scientist in 2010 or 2015, you're saying, these are the countries that really show that it's possible to build up these thriving democracies in post-totalitarian countries. And they have amazing political success, amazing economic success as well, with very rapid growth for decades. Today, the question is whether those success stories can sustain themselves. In Hungary, Viktor Orban has concentrated so much power in his own hands that the country is no longer rated as free by international observers like Freedom House. It is partially free according to Freedom House. I think it is hard to imagine that the opposition might be able to throw him out of power by democratic means because of how much he has disabled independent media and taken control of the electoral commissions, all those kinds of things. Poland is a lot more important than Hungary. It is four times bigger, four times the size of the economy, four times the size of land mass, very important geostrategically between Germany and Russia, bordering Ukraine and Belarus and so on. And the country is a couple of steps behind Hungary. Uh, you see a very similar process playing out. But for now, after eight years of this law and justice government, the opposition still just about retains a shot at displacing the government. There's just enough independent media left. There hopefully is just enough independence left in key institutions that if the opposition wins this time around, they would be able to stop this drift towards authoritarianism. So these upcoming elections are really important. The outcome is uncertain. It is looking as though law and justice might fail to win an outright majority, but most likely the more moderate opposition parties are going to fail to win an outright majority as well. And then the deciding force might be this relatively new party which merged out of a libertarian and a far-right nationalist movement called Confederatia, and it is unclear who they would support to stay in government, and it is unclear whether the moderate opposition would want to work with them, given how extreme and radical that party is in many ways. So a very important election with very high stakes, and the outcome for now is completely uncertain. Right. And, you know, the other part, too, is at least is what I've seen as I've been paying attention, is that some of the things that the law and justice, the current government and their allies are using are very sort of like Putin-esque tactics, you know, smear campaigns, online campaigns, all of this kind of stuff that, you know, look, political campaigns are, are rough and tumble, Yasha, that's not unusual, but the kinds of things they're doing seem a lot more sort of like what Putin has done and what I believe that the Trump people will try and do in the coming year. And so are we, is that just endemic to, to politics now? Is, is that just like, has that been added to the arsenal of political weapons? Well, you know, you made a great distinction, which is between rough and tumble politics and, you know, really refusing to accept the legitimacy of your political opponent. For me, that's a distinction between a populist and somebody who's not. You know, the, the late John McCain in 2008 
was capable of attacking Barack Obama in pretty strong ways, of hitting him where it hurts, sometimes in fair ways, sometimes in unfair ways. But when a few days before the 2008 election at a town hall, a lady was saying, you know, I'm afraid of Barack Obama, he's not a real American, and if he becomes president, our country is gonna, you know, go down the drains. John McCain, to his great lasting credit, said, look, I have deep disagreements with Obama, I hope you vote for me, but he's a decent man. And if he becomes president, you don't have to be afraid. Somebody like Trump says, lock her up. Anybody who's not with me is with the enemy, is a traitor, is not really American. Very clearly, the Polish government is on that side of things, calling somebody like Donald Tusk, the leader of a main opposition party, a German stooge and a Russian stooge. It's a little bit hard to see how he could be both, but saying that, you know, engaging in, in, in really disturbing propaganda against gay people, against Jews, against other minority groups, and, you know, using the control over state media to just skew that kind of propaganda in deeply disturbing ways. So that goes beyond rough and tumble to the level of saying, I am the only legitimate political force. If you disagree with me, you don't just have a different political opinion. You are a traitor to the nation. You're not a real Pole. You're not a real American. Well, Yasha, I want to thank you for today. This has given certainly me a lot to think about, and I hope it's given our listeners a lot to think about too. Before we let you go, where can we find you online if you're still somewhere on social media, and where can we find the rest of your work? So I have a podcast called The Good Fight. Please subscribe. I run a magazine called Persuasion. Please uh, subscribe to our articles at persuasion.community. We're standing up for liberal values in an increasingly authoritarian world. And I would really love it if you read my book, The, the Identity Trap. My goal with this book is to speak to two audiences. It is to give people smart, thoughtful, well-informed arguments against this new ideology and to make sure that they don't turn into reactionaries, to make sure that they don't listen to the siren calls of the only people at the moment who are actually articulating what is wrong with some of these ideas. And the second goal is to speak to people who feel torn, as I'm sure many of you do, who have the sense that on the one side, there are these injustices, and I do want to fight against them in a radical way. And here's an ideology claiming that it does that. And on the other hand, perhaps you've seen these ideas going wrong and backfiring in your own social environment, in institutions you're part of, in certain political campaigns. I think this is the book you can read to make sense of that and to figure out how you think about this important topic. Well, thanks as always. Guys, you can find me on Twitter, X, whatever Elon calls it this week, at Reed Galen. You can find me on Instagram and threads at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Yasha Munk, thank you. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.